What's the best illusion you ever saw? Have you ever been completely convinced of something and then realized you were wrong? What were the odds? Let's think about that. Ready? You've discovered the Pemology Society podcast. Join us on our journey as we explore the maximization of awesomeness, one ray of light at a time. And now, the host of today's episode, the Pemology Society's founder, James Carvin. I won't go into probability formulas or calculations, I promise. Anything involving mathematical equations goes under the hood of the machine for the engineers to deal with. There are factors that go into probability, though, and that's what we'll be talking about today, starting with a few thoughts that might just blow your mind. What we'll be exploring is the nature of probability and how it affects truth-telling machines. I'll start with the idea of illusions. If you go to a magic show, you'll be sure to see some illusions, right? You'll expect to be deceived over and over again and wonder how it happened. But in everyday life, your expectation will be very different. You'll assume that what you see is probably not a trick. Context matters. Remember that word, context. Sort of obvious, right? A pomologist is very much interested in context, but will tell you there may be more illusion than you realize. As a result, a pomologist will want you to both question and trust at the same time, depending on what type of truth you're trying to uncover. The context of your question matters. If you want to know for sure whether you aren't living in the matrix, a pomologist will actually step up to help you calculate the odds and tie it into the probable explanation that a grand illusion might serve a good purpose for the maximization of awesomeness. And because of context, at the same time, they might also tell you to ignore what they just said because you weren't asking about the meaning of or the explanation for life. You were asking whether the stoplight ahead of you was red or yellow as you drove underneath it. You were wondering whether you were going to make it to work on time. And while you were listening to NPR on the way to work, you were wondering whether Donald Trump actually knew there would be a raid on the Capitol on January 6th. Whether a pomologist tells you something is true may depend on what type of question you're asking. In my last blogcast, I gave a sort of rushed overview of some common words used in the branch of philosophy that we call epistemology. Contextualism is associated with names like Keith DeRose, Michael Williams, and David Lewis. You can look all that up, but I'll tell you everything that you need to know about contextualism as it pertains to the truth machine right here. The basic idea is that if you say to me, you live in New York, the statement you made was probably not a philosophical one. Therefore, I would tell you, no, that's not true. The statement would be false. But if you preface the statement contextually as, on a philosophical level, you live in New York, I would tell you, yes, that may be true in certain senses. I would then explore the various senses in which that could be true. On a poetic level, I might tell you, I live there in my memory since I grew up there and have some great memories of when I was young. I would stretch the meaning of the words live there. On a more literal level, I might mean that time is subject to consciousness so that all places I have been or ever will be are where I am and I have been to New York. I would stretch the meaning of the word I or the word true. And that's just the beginning of a discussion like that. Suddenly, context opens up a world of truthful statements and speculative statements 
that change the meaning of certainty and what we would refer to as true or false. Philosophers are known to endlessly question things and hopelessly complicate them that way. Pomologists will question what we see because we want everything to make sense. To be entirely accurate, a truth machine should disambiguate by clarifying context and meaning. These aren't just bothersome speculations. A pomologist wants to ask, why are we alive? We don't just say, what if life is a grand illusion, or what if I actually experience all moments of my life all the time. We actually think this may be true, and we can show you why. Would you like to know? Open your mind and ask yourself a few questions. The reason is a matter of probabilities. If you, being a human being, have only one life to live, however short, and the future is infinite, if not the past as well, then what's the probability that any moment in time would be the one of the few moments relative to all time that you would be alive? Are you aware that if time is infinite by being alive right now, you've defeated infinite odds? It makes you wonder whether time really is infinite after all. Now, I have a brother who's very smart, and he insists that I don't understand how probability works when I say this. In his opinion, the fact that we are alive right now means the odds of the point in time we call now being one of the points in time that we should be alive are 100%. There's always going to be something happening, and if something's going to happen, then whatever does happen can't say that it's impossible that that thing happened. He says that the point of probability theory is to predict future events, not past events. I think he thinks this because he's a great poker player. And that's how things work in the game of poker. Once you've got your cards, you know that the odds of you having those particular cards are 100%. Prior to that, it's something like 1 in 52 for each card, since there's 52 cards in the deck. I promised no math, so I'll leave it at that. My brother's point is that probabilities are for predicting things. Now let's think about that. In poker, if you don't throw in any wild cards, the best hand that you can get is something called a royal flush. There are four ways to get a royal flush. The 10-jack, queen, king, and ace of hearts. The 10-jack, queen, king, ace of clubs. The 10-jack, queen, king, and ace of diamonds. And the 10-jack, queen, king, ace of spades. The reason this is the best hand is there are only four combinations of ways to get it. If you had four aces, there would be 13 ways to do that, since one of your cards can be any of the other 13 cards. If there are 13 ways something can happen, given the same number of draws of cards, the probability of that thing happening is greater than if there are only four ways for something to happen. And as a result, you're more likely to get four aces than you are to get a royal flush in a game called five card stud. Now let's look at another poker game called seven card stud. Because you can draw seven cards instead of five, you're more likely to get a royal flush if you play seven card stud than if you play five card stud. Your chances increase by a factor of about a hundred, roughly. So if you were to ask me, what game you were playing when you got a royal flush, seven card stud or five card stud, and I didn't know which game it was, I would guess that you were probably playing seven card stud because the chances of you getting a royal flush are vastly improved if you have seven cards to draw from instead of five, about a hundred times better, roughly. My answer to you would be something called probabilistic abduction. 
Okay, let's disambiguate. When I say abduction, I'm not referring to kidnapping children. I mean it the way that a philosopher means it. Philosophers use words like deduction, induction, and abduction. We abduce things when we base our conclusions on the most likely explanation. If we calculate the odds to figure out what the best explanation for something is, then that's probabilistic abduction. So now, let me offer an analogy to the card game. In the game of life, we don't know how we got here. We don't know what we're doing here. We don't know if life is a grand illusion, a matrix, or a dream of some eternal being, or what. All we know is that our being alive is like that royal flush. How sweet that of all the times to be alive, now is it. Life is short. Soon we'll be dust in the wind. So when I question the odds of being alive, I'm not questioning whether I've got a royal flush or that I'm alive. I'm questioning what game it is that presents the evident reality that I have through my living senses as a perceiver in what seems like and what is called time. What game is this that produces this result? Is it five card stud? Or is it seven card stud? Is it coming from a single universe or many? Is it coming from a mechanical universe acting according to Newtonian physics? Is it data in a computer game of superior beings? Or is all matter and energy and every field just information? What games might make the presence of my awareness right now the most likely? I can begin with the most typical guesses. If I assume that my senses are reliable for perceiving and understanding reality as they are typically understood, I can say that the game of life more likely involves a short past rather than a long one and a limited future rather than an infinite one. That way, the odds would have been better for me to have been alive at this point in time. With that understanding of the game, if the ultimate length of time, adding up past and future, is something like 80 trillion years, and I live 80 years, the odds of my occurrence in any of the many points in time is about 1 in a trillion. Those 1 in a trillion odds would be better than if I assumed the game of life involved an infinite future. If the results of a hand show the defeat of 1 in a trillion odds, well, that's pretty sweet. But defeating 1 in infinite odds, that would literally be next to impossible. Yet here you are. Right about now, you should be feeling very lucky to be alive. <laughs> but if the game really involved a miracle worker, then maybe your now is now for a different reason. Maybe it isn't luck at all. What are some typical guesses as to what this game might be? First, a biblical view of a 6,000-year-old Earth would make the royal flush of your unlikely consciousness at this time a more likely game than one involving an infinite past. At least that much can be said for the traditional religious view. But I'm not sure religious people disagree with the idea of an infinite past either. Oh gosh, an infinite past? That one supposes that an infinity of time has already passed. Have you put much thought into that? Do you understand what infinity means? Can you see the contradiction in supposing that an infinite amount of time has passed? If God is from all eternity, as the scriptures say, our personal coming into existence happened only after an infinite number of years first passed. That there is a mathematical impossibility. For that matter, even if there is an infinite future, given an infinite amount of time in the past, shouldn't you have been in heaven or hell a long time ago? Seeing how fallen this world is, odds actually seem better that we're in a purgatory game right now than in a heaven or a hell game, don't you think? 
Usually there isn't any torture by fire and there's still plenty of sin, so where's God in this world? So in terms of the probability of what game of life is being played, the odds seem to favor a purgatory explanation better than the explanation of a things are just getting started and you've never died yet sort of game. Fortunately, that's not what pomologists think either. We're awesomeologists, not purgatorialists. <laughs> I'll explain how all that works together in another blogcast. For now, I'm pointing out the difference between results and causes. The result is that here you are alive, like a royal flush. Good for you. My brother's right. The odds are 100% that that's true. And that's some incredibly good news. But what game was involved that enabled it? What set of rules and parameters? What was or is the framework for the cause of the result? We may not be predicting a result, but we are asking for an explanation based on the probabilities involved in the explanations themselves. We're engaging in probabilistic abduction. Probabilistic abduction works like this. If I go to a casino and I win at blackjack over and over and over again, it won't be long before a bouncer comes out to kick me out and warn me not to come back. Nobody understands probabilities better than a casino operator. If my brother was right, then the casino operator would have no fair basis for that action. He would agree that the odds of my winning blackjack consistently were evident from what happened. They were 100%. He'd have no right to conclude that I'd been counting cards or had x-ray vision contact lenses on. I wouldn't be kicked out because my luck was too good. It would be because the bouncer assumed, based on probabilistic abduction, that I was cheating somehow. I had somehow changed the rules of the game that produced the results we all agreed on were true. To the bouncer, I probably did it by introducing some unknown factor into what was involved in making it happen. And there's that word, probably, again. It might be that the casino operators didn't have me on video to prove how I was cheating, they just knew that I probably was. And that's how your life is. It appears from our basic scientific instruments and sensory awareness to have been a product of evolution in the universe that started with a big bang some 13 billion years ago. Or if you ask a Muslim, Christian, or Jew who takes the book of Genesis literally, maybe you're convinced it happened much more recently. It appears to you that the future is everlasting too. I'm not sure how the future appears to the scientific community. There seems to be some disagreement on that. What I can tell you about it all is that a pomologist thinks like a bouncer and wonders what sort of factors most probably went into the game that favored your lucky appearance. You and I, or we, we're not saying to ourselves, hey, this couldn't be real. We're saying, how did this happen? The idea that it is all just a dream of God who dreams everything, always, is just one theory among many in search of the greatest probable explanation. Hindus and Buddhists might like that explanation. You've probably heard the expression probable cause. Probable cause usually refers to motive, but may involve other factors. If lightning strikes in the same place twice, what are the odds? Three times? Four? 
If it happens a hundred times, you'll probably be assuming there's a cause other than standard weather conditions alone. It's an anomaly. Maybe there's a body of cloud producing water next to a mountain with a metal rod shooting up somewhere where it happens. You won't assume there's no exceptional cause for the anomaly. Each lightning strike would be in the past, or you wouldn't have observed it, so you'll say the odds are 100% regarding those occurrences. But could you predict the next strike? Yes, because using probabilistic abduction, you would assume there was some cause. While any stockbroker's attorney would have to inform you that past results are no guarantee of future performance, if you knew the cause underlying the data collected thus far, you'd have a better basis for predicting future lightning strikes. You might be like an insider that would have to refrain from investing due to a conflict of interest. And actually, you wouldn't really even need to know the cause itself. All you would really have to know is through probabilistic abduction that there must be a cause. Now. What the magician does to defy odds is a trade secret. But is it a miracle? Probably not. This is how causes and probabilities work together. Normally, improbable things that happen anyway deserve explanations. Was it just a fluke, or was there a cause? What was the most probable cause? This question applies to checking facts. It applies to the prodigies of entertainment. And it applies to life itself. It's probabilistic abduction. The problem with probabilistic abduction is that it requires access to a complete inventory of the possibilities if we really want to calculate it, many of which we've probably failed to contemplate. When we see a magic show, we only have access to that inventory if we are a fellow magician. And even then, we may be impressed by a magician who knows more than we do. We can't just assume that we are seeing miracles. We can assume there's a list of tricks shared among magicians in a very private world of people mastering them for fun and profit. In other settings, we're caught off guard. Have you ever been pranked? Technology loves magic, and magic loves technology, and when you can fool people in one setting, you can fool them in another. Scammers love it. Every time another warranty company calls your mobile phone, you're already on to it. And if I hadn't been offered millions of dollars from my friends in Nigeria, I might have believed it was really Eric Schmidt, the CEO of Google, trying to friend me on a jobs board recently because he wanted to invest in the counterchecker. I understand causality and motive. I don't just believe everything I see with my senses. What are the odds when I consider the alternative explanations? When the face value odds seem too remote to be true or too coincidental to be coincidences, they probably are. What parent didn't ever warn their children, if it seems too good to be true, it probably is? Now, I live in Florida. Scammers abound here. I think they prefer warm weather. The anomalies we see in this world beg for causal explanations. Our scam detecting ability kicks in because of it. And it also kicks in for good stuff, like what game was involved in getting us here to this moment that we call now. If it's not an illusion, the odds are 100% that it happened. But what is the explanation? I'll explore that down the road in other blogcast episodes, but you've probably already guessed. The explanation is polyastronomically maximized awesomeology. Pemology, for short. For now, having looked at causality and probabilistic abduction, I'm going to turn to how all this applies to the truth machine. So let's review. In my last blogcast, I mentioned several key factors in determining truth with certainty. I started with pure logic. We gave that the name foundationism. 
When we talk about probable explanation in terms of odds, like we have been, it's pure logic. Foundationism is all about deductive logic and inference. Next, I showed you how foundationism stands in contrast to coherentism. Coherentism is a set of ideas that generally reside in our opinions about the observable world. Coherentism tries to add everything together into a big picture of the world that makes sense, sort of like a completed crossword puzzle. I told you this is what ideologies like conservatism and progressivism do. They're assumptions that fit everything they see nicely together and make sense so long as other points of view are assumed to be wrong. After that, I told you about evidentialism. Evidentialism was all about data. Whatever the evidence presents, our opinion about what is true should be based on it. Coherentists may take that evidence and apply it to their worldview, trying to see where it fits into the crossword puzzle that they build in their heads. If it doesn't fit their worldview, they either suffer from something that we call cognitive dissonance, or they make adjustments to their view. Coping this way is easier than you think. The old adage, there are exceptions to every rule, always acts as a cushion. You seldom overturn a person's worldview with a handful of contradictory evidence. Another such cushion is denial. Seeing contradictory evidence, a coherentist can assume the other side's just misinformed. Lastly, there are clouds. Illusionists call this closure. Clouds look like things that have meaning to us. We ignore the parts that don't match the patterns we anticipate. With all these epistemology terms now on the table, now let's see how we'll use them in the truth machine. In the counterchecker, when a researcher offers a critique of a fact check, or a counter to a fact check, or a counter to a counter, and so on and so on, they grade the article based on all these ways of knowing. It results in a score for each of these categories. The results might say something like, foundational logic 100%, or more typically, foundational logic 10%, coherentist assumptions 60%, causal connection 40%, reliablest verification, 20%, truth tracking, 0%. Any article could be scored from 0 to 100% in any of these categories. The public could use this as a measure of the extent that a statement was proven to be true. It's really what we should expect from a truth machine, and it'll do a lot more than that. It'll force coherentists to hash out their differences to derive the truth through dialogue. This is where we bring in another philosopher, George Hegel, who believed the best way to teach and to learn was through oppositional dialogue. Teachers call this dialectics. It's why the truth machine is set up with teams of ideologically opposed researchers. Now, you might not expect researchers who sharply disagree with one another to play fairly, especially when politics is involved. But I've anticipated that and found a way to cheat-proof the system. If you want to know how, you'll have to sign a non-disclosure agreement. There's some remarkable technology and innovation involved here, I can say that. And what I can also tell you is that it will include subjecting both sides to penalties when they break them. Better yet, the opponents will make the calls. Bad calls can be challenged and result in penalties as well. It's part of the rules of the machine. In addition to that, I can tell you that each article gets scored based on the types of violations against the general rules it makes in fairly determining the truth. The types of violations are counted, and the number of each type of violation is also counted, resulting in an objective score for how reliable the article is. Failure to provide proof or evidence 
is a violation of a fact claim. The research is judged by teams of opponents based on the quality of their evidence, their logic, their explanations of causality, and the assessment of the reliability of their methodology. To avoid getting a bad score on an article, all a researcher has to do is follow genuinely objective rules of research. If they don't, the other side's all but guaranteed to call them out on it. And similarly, points are leveled against those who make claims of violations unfairly. And that serves as a restrainer against cheating the system with shallow claims or penalties. Habitual rule breakers won't last long on teams because their bad scores will lower the team's reputation. They'll be kicked off. The only way to win is to present arguments with as little bias as possible. And that takes practice. It's not a perfect machine. Researchers will rarely have access to the data needed to track the truth every time, for instance. Conspiracy theories will therefore continue to exist. Not everyone will believe in the machine, and that's another factor, but it will still help us to work out our differences. It'll help shape better policies, and it can be used to assess the truth in a lot of areas, not just political ones. Okay, time to summarize. I started this blogcast by looking at the game of life itself. What is its cause? How long is time? We explored something I'd call probabilistic abduction, and I told you that maybe all that we see is a grand illusion. Those are pretty crazy-sounding statements until you look at the math and start talking to quantum physicists. I don't pretend to be either a mathematician or a physicist, but I might tell you, based on probabilistic abduction, that contrary to your experience, it is untrue that your consciousness is subject to time. Instead, time seems to be subject to consciousness. It's a cool thought and one I can prove probabilistically, but it deserves further explanation. Next time, I'm going to touch on it some more so you can start to see what's so awesome about awesomeology. For now, I just want to make sure you're aware of what I mean when I say that context matters when talking about what's true. If you tell me my name is James, as a pomologist, I can both agree and disagree. In the context of considering what I am as a perceiving being in some not immediately apparent explanation for consciousness, I would say, maybe I'm not James. Maybe I'm something, or even many things, very different than James. Whereas, in the context of getting by in everyday life, apart from that discussion, if you ask me what my name is, I'll say, James Carvin. Thanks for joining me. Ciao. Thank you for listening to the Pemology Society podcast. Transcripts of our podcast may be found at our website at pemology.com. We love it when you share them. Want to dig deeper? Complete our Pemology 101 course. It's free to subscribers, and you just may earn a top hat. If it would be good, it's true. I've got good news for you.